I think in terms of the election, it's important for us to not take for granted that the fire that's on display here is going to translate automatically to motivation to turn out and get others to turn out and mobilize in November. But as we're seeing in this moment, people are hungry, they're yearning for change because they've reached that point of exhaustion in the sense that as much as we've been conditioned to see the status quo as maybe unsatisfying, enough is enough. There's more than enough straws to break the camel's back here. From the University of California, Irvine, I'm Aaron Orlowski, and you're listening to the UCI Podcast. George Floyd's death sparked protests around the country as people rose up against police brutality and anti-Black racism. The outpouring of frustration and anger has amplified calls to reform policing, reallocate municipal dollars to social services, and in some cases, defund the police. As we look toward the elections in November, the question is whether the energy and anger of this moment will drive lasting political change. To learn more about the role that anger and race play in politics, I reached out to Davin Phoenix, an associate professor of political science here at UCI and author of The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics. In his research, Professor Phoenix has found that anger benefits some groups more than others. Professor Phoenix, thank you for joining me today on the UCI podcast. To be here, thank you. When you first saw George Floyd's story unfolding, what was your reaction on a personal level and as a political scientist? On a personal level, my reaction was a mix of uh, weariness, sadness, a sense of fatigue and exhaustion, um, that kind of pervasive sentiment of here we go again. And I was also in the moment uh, thinking about, worrying about uh, those around me, family and friends, um, specifically uh, African-Americans around me, waking up to kind of more traumatic or triggering footage of uh, police violence against a black individual. And I'm certainly still processing uh, those feelings. They continue to evolve um, and they're kind of very often feel as though they are baked into the experiences of being uh, Black in this country and many other countries across the world. As a political scientist, I thought about um, some of the core concepts that drive my research into race and emotion, particularly this pervasive idea of what I call racial resignation, that uh, Black people have to contend with such a litany of threats and dangers and slights whether they're navigating the political system or whether they're just kind of navigating their actual physical and social communities, that I wondered um, how this latest instance of uh, Black loss of life would um, reinforce that sense of resignation, that sense that the system is so enmeshed kind of in working against the needs and demands of black people that many people could feel an overwhelming sense of exhaustion and weariness that would demobilize them or preclude them from taking action as they'll be asked to do come this November. The exhaustion, that's not just resulting from this one incident, but that is decades and decades and even centuries of 
challenges and, and difficulties. There's that kind of endless cycle. And I think we can see that in the cycle of black people, not just experiencing this, but kind of having to commiserate with one another, share in kind of collective moments of grief, collective moments of rage, collective moments of um, strategizing. I think that endless cycle is very characteristic of the black experience. It's certainly not the only thing defining the black experience, right? But it is something that's just kind of always there. And I think it's kind of a specter of structural racism that haunts the uh, daily political engagement of black people and shapes, you know, how they decide to engage or to disengage. And, and that cycle leads to or contributes to the resignation that you were talking about earlier. Uh, can you tell us some more about how that sense of you know resignation um, is different from the way that that other groups of people get involved in politics? So it's important for us to be thinking about uh, resignation as maybe the um, flip side of anger. Uh, my work focuses largely on anger because there is a great deal of conventional wisdom from practitioners and pundits, but also kind of empirical work indicating that if you want to get people more active in politics, uh, whether it's kind of at the voting booth or canvassing, donating to candidates, or even taking on, you know, protest actions, that the key to get them more engaged is to get them angry. And why is that? Because anger as an emotion state is very distinctive in that it makes one feel more impulsive. It makes them feel less risk averse. It makes them less prone to thinking through uh, their actions and more prone to simply acting instinctively on their actions. And what are they acting? They're acting specifically to right a wrong. They feel angry as opposed to disappointed or frustrated or afraid or sad when they feel as though um, some norm has been violated, when they had been unjustly denied something uh, that they feel entitled to. So that anger can be a very palpable force in politics. But what I find through looking at national survey data and a couple of experiments is that uh, Black people specifically, and actually people of color more broadly, are not as uh, likely to express anger over politics, uh, at least publicly. And additionally, the anger that they do express over politics does not translate nearly as effectively towards political actions than it does for their white counterparts. And so I argue that there's two things going on there, specifically for African-Americans. The first is that idea of racial resignation, right? They don't necessarily see some of these threats as a violation of a norm or as some kind of disruption from them receiving treatment they were entitled to because they don't have the same sense of expectations, right? They don't feel that same sense of entitlement because they have this underarching or underlying sense that the system itself isn't actually fair, that the system itself isn't actually just. And so they can be frustrated, bitterly disappointed in the output of that system, yet not actually feel that system is acting any differently than it was intended, or kind of that there's any kind of glitch in the system that is actually the system functioning uh, as intended. And so that's a really important uh, distinction because they can react to some of these threats, not with indignation that kind of fires up that uh, political response, but with that sense of resignation, right? Been there, done that. We've been here before. We'll be here again. And the the labels that are applied to black people who are angry and people of other groups, especially white people who are angry, are different. Can you tell us some more about that? And then, what are the consequences of those different labels? You know, we can think about times in which 
we've had kind of insurgent or protest movements led by angry or disaffected white people, and they don't receive the same um, problematization within media discourse. They certainly do not receive the same intensive police or state response. And so we can think about the ways in which we have either not totally grappled with those instances or those explosions of white rage, or we actually um, can even romanticize or celebrate those moments. So we can consider much of the media focus on property destruction that is taking place in some of these protests throughout the U.S. And I say, well, you know, we're not talking about the uh, Boston Tea Party as an instance of looting or property destruction, right? Obviously, there's different contexts here, but at the core, we see a group of angry, disaffected people that are acting in a coordinated fashion, right, to spur revolutionary change. And they're not uh, hesitant, right, to let some crates of tea uh, be the victims of that movement. And so we consider the ways in which we can hail people acting on their anger as patriots or revolutionaries. At the same time, when we see movements of Black people acting on their anger, or even not even acting on it, but simply expressing it publicly, we've seen them labeled via the FBI as identity extremists, or we've seen them be denounced as uh, violent opportunists, or just threats and used as uh, labeled with racialized terms like thugs. We've seen numerous instances of protests that kind of checks off all the boxes in terms of being relatively non-confrontational and absolutely peaceful and not leading to any kind of property destruction or violence of any kind. And it's still been roundly denounced and dismissed as out of place. So we can certainly draw contrast between how people are saying now, well, as long as they were peaceful, we would take them seriously. Do you think that the narrative might be changing at all? I mean, as we've seen in some of the, the recent polling, there seems to be more acceptance of the Black Lives Matter movement. And there seems to be, at least at this point, more of a reckoning with this country's history of white supremacy. Do you see things changing or, or is, the, is the tone shifting? We do seem to be in a distinct, maybe critical juncture point moment. You know, I'll highlight some work that I've done with recent uh, UCI PhD, Manisha Wara, who's now in his first year teaching as an assistant professor at uh, Wellesley College. Uh, we found a, a noticeable correlation between the ways in which policing protests, particularly around Ferguson in 2014, were being covered by major news media and spikes in legislation uh, that would rein in police or augment police accountability. So specifically, we're looking at not only volumes of coverage, but how the coverage of these protests is framed. Is it taking a pro-protester stance or is it kind of problematizing the protest? And for the pro-protest spikes in coverage, we see um, subsequent spikes in state-level bills being proposed and passed that would increase police accountability by the same token for the spikes in coverage that's taking a critical eye towards the protesters. We see subsequent spikes in bills that would enhance or increase police autonomy kind of along the lines of police uh, Blue Lives Matter bills. But a good friend of mine, Andrea Benjamin, also has a piece looking at the shifts in public opinion and support for Black Lives Matter. Those are very prominent and very striking. We've gone from you know, pretty solid majorities of white Americans expressing some level of 
discomfort with that idea to a plurality for the first time endorsing the idea, saying that they support Black Lives Matter. At the same time, we also see, she points out, uh, majorities of people or significant numbers of people that also approve of the police response to the protests, which many people that are participants in this protest and activists are saying has been an overaggressive response, one that's only incited violence and further kind of uh, fueled the fires of tensions between police and people and led to many unnecessary arrests and unnecessary violence against protesters and civilians alike. So she also finds that, you know, for all of the increasing support for the idea of Black Lives Matter, there's still tepid support for some of the fundamental policy changes being advanced or demanded by the activists. But I think that's to be expected, right? We often do find um, support for ideas moving much quicker than support for concrete policy change. Well, looking ahead to to November, what do you think are the possibilities here? Do you, that that these protests and and these you know political demands lead to actual lasting change? Sure. I mean, I think I see a lot of fits and starts. Right. So we can think about the ways in which maybe conversations or ideas or notions that would have been you know, beyond the pale of political discourse just two months ago are now being discussed, even if they're being challenged or even ridiculed, the fact that they're on people's lips when they wouldn't have even been imaginable to be said by these very same people matters, right? So I'm talking, of course, about calls to defund the police, right? Or the ways in which more and more people are grappling with ideas that have been long been advocated for in the research, like prison abolition, or even, you know, kind of abolition or systematic transformation of the bail system. You know, all these ways in which people can profit off the incarceration of people. So I think we can see the um, foundation being laid for some radical transformation that actually in the immediate and moderate term are going to have very intensive uh, pushback and resistance but ultimately can kind of soften as people's ideas begin to evolve on these ideas and attitudes that seem so radical now, but might not a little bit down the road. But I mean, beyond even kind of calls to defund the police, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, meaningful reforms that haven't been a part of the initial wave of actions, but, you know, perhaps, perhaps long overdue, maybe now there's enough momentum to finally get those things enacted. So right, what did we see as the initial wave of reforms after the kind of, wave of Ferguson unrest. We saw, you know, commitment to body cameras. You know, we saw some more creation of civilian review boards. We saw some commitment to better accounting and better reporting of incidents of police violence. So I think some of those similar reforms that we hadn't seen in that first wave, we can see in this wave uh, include and this is, you know, these aren't the kind of radical transformation people are calling for, but they could, they could matter, right, kind of in the run-up to that. Um, a better accounting system for police officers that have been accused of misconduct and a better means of identifying them and perhaps moving them out of the systems so that even if they lose their job for misconduct in one um, jurisdiction, they can't easily get a job as a police officer in another jurisdiction. And I say easy, but I should say they shouldn't be able to get a job, right? Uh, Maybe we'll finally get momentum towards a national database of incidents of police violence uh, and not just shootings, right? All forms of police violence because people have been clamoring for that and calling for that. And some journalists have looked to fill that gap for years. We still haven't seen much uh, 
movement on that. I think in terms of the election, it's important for us to not take for granted that the fire that's on display here is going to translate automatically to motivation to turn out and get others to turn out, mobilize in November. They need a real sense of incentive, a real sense that a vote they cast this time, a vote that many feel I'm gonna have to spend hours in line to cast this vote, uh, I might be at risk of transmission of a highly infectious disease if I'm out here, especially if the continued assaults on mail-in ballots, right? They need to know that there's gonna be actual responsiveness and that's going to take a real departure from the normal talking points. It's gonna take a real departure from the normal creation of the party's platform. But as we're seeing in this moment, people are hungry, they're yearning for change because they've reached that point of exhaustion in the sense that as much as we've been conditioned to see the status quo as maybe unsatisfying, enough is enough. There's more than enough straws to break the camel's back here. So why do you think that that this moment is different, you know, compared to those previous moments of, of protest? So we look at this very unique context that we're in. So obviously we can first think about the political context. Generally speaking, race relations have been increasingly tense in the Trump administration. It's quite the 180 from at least what the dominant perception was during the Obama era, the supposed, you know, post-racial era. So I think that's an important context where people can be moved to or compelled to take these actions in part because they are keenly or acutely aware of just how resistant potentially the current regime is and the current political culture is to addressing these kinds of costs for systematic change through electoral means. When we think about context, we have to think about the context of COVID-19. So I think there's two things that are important to me as I consider the role that this has played in fueling this moment. One, I think it is increased um, a sense of fire in the hearts of many of the activists and people that are taking to the streets, both African-Americans and those in solidarity. Because we can see the numbers that show COVID-19 has had a disproportionate toll on Black people, not just in terms of rates of transmission and rates of mortality, but of course also because it's really laid bare the economic vulnerabilities of the group, Black people being overrepresented amongst those that are essential workers on the front lines and uh, you know, particularly vulnerable to the spread of COVID, and also in the uh, vulnerability of Black people who are often working jobs that don't allow them to work remotely and allow them to be uh, more likely to be fired, right, or kind of at risk of being fired in this moment with those huge unemployment numbers. And so I think there's that backdrop, right, with many people feeling very acutely a sense of vulnerability and a sense of kind of lack of care for their status from the powers that be. And I think that really is magnified here. And the other, I think, role that COVID has played is that because many of us don't have, even if we're ensconced in privilege that allow us to still have kind of um, consistent incomes and work from home and try to figure that out, because we don't have the real world everyday distractions to shift our gaze, I think we are left to just sit with the abject horror of these instances of police violence, not just as individuals, but as media, right? Like you can't just talk about the next big movie premiere, right? Or you can't talk about this and that because it's literally not happening. So we cannot kind of look away in this moment. I think that has helped fuel these protests to be kind of more and more salient. So we have the this political context at the national level, and then we have the the COVID-19 pandemic, which has 
kind of removed the distractions uh, for all of us so that we're really forced to confront this issue. And I guess, I guess maybe that's almost the silver lining is that, you know, the fact that we're, that people are at home and, and unable to numb themselves by going to the movies, you know, we're actually forced to confront these problems. I really am curious how many people have been, you know, staunchly committed to sheltering in place. And the first time they really rejoined the crowd was to participate in a protest, right? I think that's a really profound thing. I think about the young people, particularly like high school and college graduates, the class of 2020, right, who endured generation-defining calamities in the space of their time in school, and how this is going to have profound effects, right, on their political engagement going forward. Not only how they choose to participate in politics, but what they make their a priori demands, right, what they make the issues upon which they mobilize, both for electoral politics and for non-electoral politics. And, you know, time will only tell us how this moment impacts this cohort, the emergent cohort of young voices who ultimately will be in positions of power in politics and in all kinds of institutions that have a hand, right, in either perpetuating or dismantling continued systematic racism. Seems like, you know, the, the young people, they are aware and active and, uh, you know, empathetic. I absolutely agree. I mean, that's by far the most gratifying part of my job, being able to work with young people at UC Irvine, so many of whom are, you know, looking to be the first in their immediate families to graduate college. You know, so many of them have a very clear conviction and passion for doing some type of work in their overall trajectory that can have a direct benefit for the communities that they come from, that they still care about. And so that's always, um, what I cling to, what I hold on to, when that weariness, when that sense of fatigue, you know, sets in particularly hard. Thinking about the emergent generation of folks who um, can feel that heaviness and feel that weariness, but also maybe um, might not yet have that same sense of resignation locked in and set in. Um, and I think that's such a powerful combination of sentiments to have. And I think that's why we often see transformational change, you know, led directly and indirectly by young people who are willing to look at the world, not as it is, but as it could be, and demand that people, including people that are in the cohorts before them, start to shift our priorities to begin imagining and creating that world. Professor Phoenix, thank you for joining me today on the UCI podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The UCI podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine.